Hello and welcome to Alumni Podcasts. I'm Sarah, your host, and in this series, I'll be speaking with professionals and thought leaders in the exciting fields of alumni engagement, advancement, development, and community building. We'll dive into the latest insights, trends, strategies, and success stories with a range of experts from universities, schools, scholarship foundations, and nonprofits who are shaping the future of the industry throughout the world. Thanks so much for joining us and enjoy the episode. The University of Oxford is recognized globally as an outstanding educational institution with a rich history spanning over a thousand years. With an impressive alumni list that includes 28 UK prime ministers, 27 Nobel laureates, and 50 Nobel prize winners, Oxford has a reputation for world-class teaching and world-class research. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome my guest today, who is Christine Fairchild. Christine has been the Director of Alumni Relations at the University for the last 12 years. Welcome to Alumni Podcast, Christine. It's a treat to be here. It's wonderful. Thanks so much for joining me, Christine. School's out for summer. We're recording this episode towards the end of August. And I'm sure that you and your team are busy at work preparing for the new term. What's in the planning for you for alumni engagement for this upcoming academic year, Christine? It's full steam ahead. We are getting ready. Well, we've just launched our, we've opened registrations for our big alumni weekend. We've already got over a thousand registrants, which is fantastic. I think there's a real appetite for people to get back out again and to be together, to come back returning to the university. We are, we're full steam ahead for that. So all, yeah, all systems go. It's terrific. That's great. So yeah, yeah, I know that professionals in your space don't take the entire summer off. There's plenty of preparation work to be done for the next, for the next year, for the next semester. Yep. Christine, as a seat of academic learning, the reputation of the University of Oxford really speaks for itself. I read recently that the university was again ranked as the world's top university in the Times Higher Education Rankings. I think that's for the seventh consecutive year. That's right. That depends on the rankings you're looking at. And I think that's the one of the challenges. We do like the rankings that put us number one, um, but it is also <laughs> quite daunting because the idea that you're number one in successive years, you know, the potential is the only way to go is down. So, so we have to work very hard to stay at number one. Yes. Yeah, certainly. I'm sure you must work very hard to maintain that ranking. But you must also be incredibly proud of the work that you've done there, Christine, in the last 12 years. And talking in general terms, the number of notable alumni produced by the university over the years, over the centuries, really, is phenomenal. The likes of Stephen Hawking, Edwin Hubble, Edmund Halley, Albert Einstein, Lewis Carroll, Dana Emma Thompson, of course, Malala Yousafzai, and some of the, the Monty Python crew. Michael Palin and the late Terry Jones. I'm a huge Python fan. I believe the other three Pythons studied at Cambridge. They did. Uh, did. But we uh, too, we're proud of the Pythons as well. In fact, one of my happiest days was when I saw that Michael Palin had asked to have the alumni magazine Oxford Today renewed, sent to his home, which indicated, you know, that he actually read it, which was was wonderful. That's brilliant. Great story. So we, we are very proud of our notable alumni, and, and it is remarkable to look into every, 
you know, corner office almost and, and every uh, type of industry. And you'll find Oxford alumni doing extraordinary things. Some of them are very public and very, very obvious. Obviously, many of our politicians here in the UK were trained here at Oxford, which is remarkable. But there are so many people who've come from places that wouldn't have expected to end up at Oxford. And one of the things that we've worked very hard to do in the past few years is to change people's perception of the university and move it from being a, a perception that it is an elite institution, elitist institution that will that only accepts people from the, the private school sector or in England, the public school sector, when indeed what we're trying to do and, and have done significantly is move that needle to encourage and support people from disadvantaged backgrounds, people who would never have thought that Oxford would be a place for them. And it could be simply people, you know, from communities here in the UK, up in the North, for instance, where the idea of going to Oxford in the South was just a bridge too far. They often were not encouraged by their teachers. In fact, some of them actually were discouraged by their teachers. So we've worked really hard to develop some, some alumni voices that we take into those inner city schools and those distant um, locations to try to change the perception and make Oxford seem as attainable for them as it is for anyone. And that's been a real joy to see and the extraordinary life journeys that these, these students take. They go on to do great things and it, it, it's a real privilege to be able to watch that and to facilitate it in some way. Yeah, I can completely get that. I'm from the North myself, as you can probably hear in my accent and growing up in Yorkshire in, in Sheffield. For us kids, attending Oxford or Cambridge was not even in the realms of reality. For us, it was a completely unattainable goal. Yes. We shouldn't be afraid of uh, accepting the best. The reality is we do want to accept the sort of elite learners, if you will. We don't want to be the elitist. You know, that there's that wonderful distinction, isn't there, between being somehow perceived as, you know, narrow and only accepting people from a, who look a certain way or behave a certain way or whose background, but, but to be open and to realize that actually elite learners can be found in all sorts of dynamics and all sorts of neighborhoods and backgrounds and that sort of thing. So, so it is, it's, it is a joy. Let's take some time now, Christine, to talk a little bit more about your career. As I mentioned, you, you have been the alumni director at the university for 12 years. But prior to that, you were at Harvard Business School for 17 years in various different roles. Could you share a little bit more about your time at Harvard? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting. I've worked literally for only two institutions in my whole life, which is quite unheard of. So most recently, before coming to, to Oxford, I was the executive director of external relations at the Harvard Business School, which oversaw the development, alumni relations, alumni communications, administration side of the shop. And before that, I was the director of alumni relations there and, and before that, assistant director. So I, I was really raised at Harvard. In fact, my very first job was in the museum sector at Harvard. And so I really cut my teeth on an institution that had so many extraordinary nooks and crannies. Having a, a museum experience, set of experiences is very different than moving over into uh, a business school environment. But that was a, a wonderful opportunity and one that I embraced wholly and loved every minute of. I never would have thought I'd been carved out to be in a business school person. 
but but it was brilliant. And yeah. and then it really all of that really prepared me for this transition over to Oxford. I was trading one very complicated decentralized institution for another. This one, this one, Oxford being far more devolved and and complicated than Harvard was. But it's been an extraordinary journey, really. Yeah, I, I bet it has. And you say only two institutions, but these are two major reputable seats of academic learning. The University of Oxford and Harvard, which of course is an Ivy League university in the US. What I would like to ask you briefly is what are the main differences or similarities working in an alumni relations role in the US compared with over the pond in the UK? Sure. So I think the similarity is around brand recognition. We were both of those institutions carry such recognizable brands and and as a result, you know, the ability to get things done, to be to be visible to people, to be relevant to people was fairly easy. It was an easy story to tell. The differences are profound, however, and that's because in America the culture is very much around supporting your higher ed and your school in your those institutions supporting them from the moment you almost achieve you know admission all through that experience of being a student and then graduating that expectation that you're part of that alumni community is ingrained in you and is is part of that experience whereas in the UK it's very different yeah. um, part of it is the fee structure or the lack thereof for many years part of it is just the way people talk about and feel affiliated with their institutions in America, we're much more. We wear our institutions on our sleeves. We and we and we wear them on our car, and we wear them in our the baggage that we carry. <laughs> uh, everything is branded, and we're and we're very proud of that. Whereas in the UK, it's a much much quieter affiliation. Certainly at Oxford, given the fact that you are as an undergrad, you are absorbed into this college structure, and that's a very small micro community, if you will where you live and learn and eat and socialize. And so that relationship with your college is an extremely strong one that endures for many years, obviously. But that affiliation to the university comes a bit later and, and one that, granted, if, you, if you're a recent graduate and you're going out for a drink and you meet somebody in a bar who says, gosh, where did you go to university? You typically wouldn't say, well, I went to Jesus College. You would say, I went to Oxford University. But but still, that affiliation and that sort of sense of personal loyalty, I think, can often starch at a college, and then it ra radiates out and around to encompass your affiliation to your department or to your rowing club, maybe to the museums or the libraries. That sort of that those affiliations expand into this extraordinary kind of web of affiliations. Um, which is which is fantastic. It makes Oxford a very rich place to be connected because there are so many points of contact. Uh, and but that's a profound difference from the way the American universities are structured. I think in general, when the work I've done with U.S. universities, and then we worked a lot with universities not just in the U.K. but in in Europe, is that in the U.S. there's really this affiliation to college or to university so deeply embedded in the culture yes. in the United States. And and it's not, as, as you alluded to, it's not quite the same in UK and European universities. And it's something that they've been working to build and improve. The other thing is with UK universities, 
I did. I just think they undervalued their alumni until recently. I really think they sort of took them for granted. Could be one way of putting it. That they felt that their responsibility was to educate those students to the best of their ability, which they did, and then and then set them off on their way, um, hopefully with a clear path forward in terms of a profession and that sort of thing. But they didn't really understand the power that alumni bring back to that institution. Certainly, when UK universities started to need to raise money. They saw their alumni obviously yeah. as an audience or or a source of income, but they but they preempted the relationship by asking for money. They started the relationship almost on the wrong foot because they they sort of went full tilt toward the the fundraising side of things without really having embedded alumni into the experience and giving them that sense of yeah. belonging. So one of the things that we've done, I think, really well is to sort of play catch up, if you will. Oxford and Cambridge are, are extremely adept at engaging with their alumni, and, I, and, and many of the other UK universities are as well. And they are really getting more and more adept at this by investing more in the alumni engagement um, experience. And we are looking at engagement in, in a more multidimensional way now. We're not looking at it simply from the perspective of how much money have you given us, but it's also how many events do you come to? How many times are you reacting to communications that we're sending out? What are you volunteering for? We're looking at these, these dynamics in a more sophisticated way to build a picture, a better picture, a 360-degree picture of what alumni engagement really means. And if you look at the way alumni offices are resourced, in, compar- in, in the UK, in comparison to the US, there's an enormous difference. Enormous. The US has has really put their money behind investing in those alumni programs and people to support a dynamic program. Whereas here, I think we're still learning how to do that. I see. So related to that, on what you allu- alluded to, is that this affinity with alumni community shouldn't begin at graduation. It should really start right off the bat in Freshers Week, as it's called in the UK, or Orientation Week, as it's known as in the US. I'd even push it back further. I'd push it back, and I would say it should begin when students are beginning to explore the idea of a university. I think that's where alumni can start to pop up in their windscreen, if you will, as role models, I think that's what one of the things we're doing is taking alumni from, say, these various corners of the UK and and giving them the right ammunition to go into the community and talk about studying at a university, the importance of doing that, bringing Oxford with them as they do that, so that the applicant or even the pre-applicant is seeing alumni as 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 a force for good on behalf of the institution. So they, so they become part of their world as they're thinking about applying. When they apply, that's great. You know, they, the, the alumni could, could even do some practice interviews and that sort of thing. Uh, while the student, you're right, goes off um, in their first year to have some kind of a, a touch point with alumni to say, this is what it's going to be like for you. This is what your first year is going to feel like. And then they should be popping up while they're students. They should be popping up as as mentors or popping up as role models or internship providers or any number of ways, mentors, career support. And then certainly as they're leaving, maybe they're offering 
jobs to, to graduating students. Maybe they're serving as career support for them. Or as they land in a specific city, that alumni group in that city is welcoming to that that recent graduate. So we're, yeah, we're chapters, working right alumni chapters. Yeah, exactly. We're working very hard right now. We just um, named somebody in our office as our new alumni engagement manager. And she's in charge of looking at that journey from application through the student experience on into graduation and beyond to the first five years or so. What are the touch points? What do we need to do? How do we need to behave? What tone do we need to use with them? What kind of programs and resources uh, will resonate with that particular age group? It's no longer one size fits all. It's got to be very personalized. Christine, I'd like to change tack slightly now and ask you, uh, within your very impressive 29-year career in alumni relations, what's the most significant challenge you've witnessed or experienced? Sarah, I think, I think any professional would say COVID. It certainly was the most challenging from on, on every level. It was challenging when it came to managing staff. It was challenging when it came to deploying resources in a different way in order to be able to connect alumni. We'd never been a digital operation before, and we had to learn how to do that very, very quickly. So a lot of it was skill, skill setting and, and reskilling of a team that was structured quite differently. So I think we would, all of us would say that that was, that was a very, very challenging, difficult time that, that proved our mettle, I think, as, as professionals. I think we all responded extremely well. I think everybody would say, goodness me, our engagement levels rose exponentially and we were able to really learn a lot from the experience and build relationships with people we just didn't even have because we didn't have a digital offering for them. Oh, wow. So not having a digital offering at all when COVID is in March 20, you then had to pivot from one week to the next, which it really felt like. And the truth is, you are not alone in that predicament, Christine. Many schools and universities that I've spoken to found themselves in exactly the same position at that time, requiring them to completely reinvent their alumni engagement and go full on digital. And the fortuitous thing is that you were also not the only institution who succeeded in boosting their engagement, exponentially doing that. Yeah. And I think so much of this too, as I say, the toll was felt not simply in terms of the skills and, and needing to rebuild the skills. But just in terms of the staff and the team, the sense of a team culture, we went from being a very tightly knit team that re re really sort of resonated with its, through its energy, it got its energy through each other, um, to finding out how to recreate that energy in a distant, remote working setting um, was hard. It was really hard. And just coping with people's different lifestyles. Typically, in the past, when we worked in the office, the team came into the office every day. We weren't as aware of what people's living situations were, but we got to the point where I knew what people's living rooms looked like. I knew what their cats looked like. Yeah, it, it, it became a very different dynamic. And that was good and that was not so good. Yes, difficult times indeed, where we were separated, all separated, but paradoxically, we found ourselves intimately connected in, in people's living rooms and kitchens surrounded by their their children and pets. Christine, let's talk now about best practices and strategies, either at Harvard or Oxford or both, that you found to be really effective in cultivating a very strong 
and engaged community over your time in the roles? And what advice would you give to universities looking to strengthen their own alumni communities? So it's a great question, Sarah. And I think, I think what's t- there's sort of 17 answers to that question because so much of it depends on the context. So if I were advising somebody who was just starting up a program, I think my advice would be all around thinking about a database, a really strong database, a strong platform, because if you don't know who your alumni are and where they are and what they do, it's very hard to do anything that's effective. Whereas if I was talking to somebody who was a bit more um, kind of evolved, I would talk about the nuances around segmentation, around voice, around tone, things that I talked about a little while ago. Because I think alumni now are expecting their institutions to be more aware of who they are. They're expecting an Amazon experience in some respects. They're looking for people, for the institution to to be able to react and say, gosh, Sarah, you attended this event last Thursday on dementia. Gosh, maybe you'd be interested in this piece of research that's coming down the pike on uh, early onset dementia. To be a bit more responsive to alumni as opposed to taking kind of the the cookie cutter approach that that one size fits all. So I would say my advice is around being really close to the, your constituency, understand who they are and and reflect that or or take the data that you have for them and and query it regularly. Be agile and be responsive to what you're seeing the data tell you. Do a lot of forward planning. We've done quite a bit of work recently looking at the year 2030. What is our alumni population going to look like in 2030? And we know that they are going to be much more the Generation X um, and and Z. They are going to be more mobile, as in moving around the world much more. They're going to be expecting us to keep up with them. They'll be looking for those personalized experiences. They'll be transitioning through jobs much more quickly. So, so be really, I would advise people to be really close to their constituency and start future-proofing their organization to respond to those changing needs of their constituents. Really think about also, I would say, reflecting the university constantly, going back to the university and reminding yourself of what the key principles and, and strategic direction or vision is for that university so that you are informing others within the organization, but you're all seeing from the same hymn sheet to be sure that message is consistent. Alumni are hearing from a lot of different corners of the institution. You want to be sure that, that people are, are hearing a consistent message. I think that's really valuable information, Christine, and I agree. And I think that many universities will relate to this as the workforce becomes more increasingly global and transient. And as you mentioned, people change jobs more frequently than they did before. Some change professions midlife. Uh, Your alumni can be scattered across different cities and countries and time zones. How do you think you can maintain then a strong sense of community and engagement when you have a dispersed alumni network? Well, I think it, it comes in different forms, doesn't it? So alumni chapters, local alumni chapters can go a long way toward that because they're often our eyes and ears and, and boots on the ground. They're the ones often closest to alumni. So having organizations that represent the university in those cities where there is enough of a concentration of alumni is terribly important. 
being sure that they are informed and kept close to the institution through whatever mechanisms you have, whether it's, you know, regular webinars or or academics traveling through those cities, obviously trying to be as present as possible is is so important. Certainly the systems, and this is one way in which I think we as an institution at Oxford need to do a ton more, is being sure that systems are linked up. And and that means that the systems across the university here are are varied and, and come in different shapes and sizes and different levels of, of sophistication. And they certainly don't all link up. And so one of the biggest problems we have is the student system, that transition from student to alumnus is can be a bumpy one because they're migrating off of a student information system and onto our system, our alumni database. And that is not always an easy one. Um, or just making sure that the interface that we have with alumni online, that that is a smooth and clear and easy one for them to navigate. So there's a lot that needs to be done just on the technical side to be sure that we're supporting that relationship. But we also have to be on it all the time. We've got to be sure that our communication are robust enough and are in the right format for the right people. So one of the things that happened at Oxford a few years ago is the decision was made to get rid of our print alumni magazine. And that was a decision based on sort of economics, obviously. It was based on needing to cut costs. But that was that had a huge knock-on effect on uh, a particular generation of people who really valued that way. That was the only way they wanted to receive their information about the university. It was the only way that they felt close to the university and were able to sort of, you know, reconnect, if you will. And as a result, we saw a real drop-off in engagement amongst a certain set of people. And we can't assume that it's just an older generation anymore. There are a lot of younger people, and especially people in, in other countries, who value that brand that, that is imprinted on a magazine that sits on their coffee table or on their desk at work and is a signal to others that they are an Oxford alum and helps to add to their own brand recognition. And, and we lost that too. So I think we need to really think about our audience in light of the kind of expectations they have, the sort of experiences that they've had. And we need to be thinking about creating a, an experience for them that responds to that. It's very interesting you should say that because many universities, it would seem, have ditched their printed newsletters or quarterly magazines. And you would expect perhaps that maybe some more mature alum who are used to that type of communication would be affected. But what you're saying is that it was not, in fact, just a particular cohort. It was others as well who felt that that was part of the brand, part of the, their connection with the university. That's not something I would actually have considered. If you look further, if you look at alumni who are further away, their connections are more tenuous for obvious reasons because they are further away. But often their relationship or their heartbeats are stronger, uh, oddly enough. And, and some of it is dependent on that kind of, the kind of stuff that you have hanging around that is a reminder, almost nostalgic reminder of their connections with the institution. We're living now in this new digital landscape, as we've spoken about earlier in our conversation, particularly post-COVID, where alumni relations success is quite heavily influenced by having community platforms or some other kind of remote forum where alumni can communicate not only with the school or university, but also 
feel connected with each other, uh, with their fellow alumni. And initiatives like podcasts, which is my day-to-day work, can really help boost that engagement. I noticed that the University of Oxford has quite a few very robust podcast series that are running across different departments. It would seem that different departments produce their own podcast series, whether it's science, mathematics, history, arts, etc. But I did see that you have a specific channel at the university called Alumni Voices, where alumni can share their stories of success. Are there any other initiatives that have been running when it comes to podcasts and the University of Oxford? I I think we're really quite keen to explore this even more. We did a little bit of work when we had our graduating student fair. We deployed a filmographer to an audiographer as well to collect sort of perceptions of the graduating student to give us some sense of what their experience was, if they could sum it up, if you will. And certainly when we do our alumni weekends, where we bring alumni back to the university for a full weekend long series of hot and cold running events all over the city, we also try to capture that alumni experience. And in fact, when I was at Harvard Business School, we did something wonderful, similar to something on national public radio in the state. We created this sort of booth where you could go in and, and, and give, your, give yourself time to, to tell a memory, to describe a memory that you had of that experience that you had at the institution. Oh, it was that. really powerful. It was just wonderful and, and a wonderful way to kind of punctuate people's return to the university or to the school. So we're keen to grab those alumni voices. We, I think the, the idea that they can be multi-purpose is a really powerful one. In other words, those voices and those, those discussions or interviews can be used as provocative interviews to get students to think about applying or they can be reinforcing to people who are thinking about coming back to do another degree, or they can be useful in just telling the public the story of what it means to study at Oxford, or it can be a personal experience as an academic or a researcher. So, so there's a lot that you can do with those, with those conversations that can be really quite powerful. And podcasts are interesting, aren't they, these days? people I see people out mowing their lawn, and they're listening to podcasts as they do that. So it becomes... Yeah something you don't have to do in a, in a passive way, you can be folding, folding that into something. Laundry. Is, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. I thought you were going to say folding laundry, but yeah, it's the eyes-free and uh, hands-free medium that right. makes them so yes. popular. Uh, you yeah. can be getting on with other things. And for me, for example, I really felt after COVID, I was Zoomed out. I had Zoom fatigue. And I, yeah. I, I couldn't look at screens anymore. I couldn't look at webinars. And I was running webinars mm-hmm. because of the pandemic, because all the events sure. I was organizing at the time were remote. So this is a, a wonderful benefit of podcasting and why they are increasing in popularity. And I'll tell you something interesting I read recently, Christine, is that of the in the United States, at least, of the percentage of Americans who are listening to podcasts, Something massive like 32% are, are, are college students is their Gosh. go-to medium. Mm-hmm. And so we can anticipate, yeah, it's very high. There's research to back this up. And so we, we can anticipate, therefore, that they're going to continue to enjoy that medium once they graduate and become part of the alumni, alumni body. So that's one interesting yep. aspect. 
In terms of storytelling, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the alumni are your, are your brand ambassadors. They can share so much on a podcast. It can be career highlights or insights or memories of student days and mm, are just lovely been. nostalgic experiences from the yes. days at the school. So, yeah, many parts to that. Wow. So nice to speak to you, Christina. We could honestly talk for hours. I mean, what people know. don't know before we started re recording is that we spoke for about 30 minutes before we even began recording because we've not seen each other for yeah. such a long time. So you are, I hope you don't mind me mentioning, you are preparing to retire very soon. So I think it was yes. really poignant that we sat down today. But there's a couple of questions I want to ask you to finish. What aspects of your work in alumni relations are you the most proud of? And why do they hold special significance for you? Gosh, I think... Is that it, a hard I question? It, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's a tough one because there is... There's so much, and it's been such a quite a quite a long career, frankly. But I but I think it's you know anything that we've done that I've done with my my teams that have been this sort of remarkable coming together group effort where we've been able to have an impact. A lot of the work that we've done here at Oxford has been international outreach to alumni, where we've taken the university to a city. It could be Rome, it could be Hong Kong, it could be Tokyo, and we've put on these remarkable events where we've we've basically deployed the whole university and, and brought that expertise and knowledge and, and experience to people, to alumni in those cities. And that's been such a joy because it's been the success of that has been dependent on all of us working together, all of us seeing that we have a role to play, none of us taking a you know, protective view of anything, but feeling that we all benefit from doing these things together. So so I'd say the things that I'm most proud of are those things that crystallize that incredible ecosystem of the university and, and bring it together in a in a remarkable in a remarkable celebration of of what makes this place special. Oh, yeah, that's like a perfect answer. Perfect answer. Good. good Thank good. you for good. that. <laughs> so finally, you've got all this experience. What advice are you going to give to your successor as they take on the role of director? of alumni relations. And what's next for you, Christine? So the answer to, to what am I going to do is a very easy and quick one, Sarah, because I really have no idea. <laughs> well, most that I know I'm going to do is to take a lovely month and a half long holiday and, and just sort of recalibrate, kind of recharge the batteries and, and come back to Oxford and think about what that next chapter is, because I, I just don't know. But as far as advice for my successor, it's, it really is, first of all, enjoy every minute. Secondly really think about the people, listen to the people around you. There is such extraordinary wisdom here at this institution, and there are so many voices that are really worth listening to. So it's, it's, it really is spend the time that you need to spend listening and really sort of calibrating what they're telling you. I think I mentioned to you earlier, we commissioned a really wonderful piece of work from um, a firm called More Partners to look at alumni engagement at the University of Oxford to look at it in retrospect, but also to look at it in the context of what other institutions are doing um, to understand where we might do things differently and where we might need to put things down in order to pick things up. And all of that, all of that really sort of 360 perspective 
and and that report is going to be delivered shortly and and that will be a wonderful opportunity for my successor to read through that and to take those recommendations um, and think about what needs to be actualized um, and and what the benefits are of doing that so in a way, I mean, it's a great opportunity to to take on this job because they will have this wonderful playbook, and the team is so brilliant. They are they are so great. So this person will have a a, a wonderful leg up, I think. And in taking it to the next level, it really is an opportunity to take it to the next levels. So I'm I'm a little bit jealous, actually. Yeah. you deserve a, a a rest now and to do things that you enjoy. I think I know right. you're very passionate about your work, but. Knowing you, Christine, you will find passions in different directions. I hope so. Looking forward to it. Christine, I want to thank you so much again for joining me on this episode. Maybe we might get the chance to speak again. I mean, we really could speak Excellent. about things sure, of course, all day. Of course, and it's been, it's been a treat, Sarah. It's, it's lovely to, to have this kind of an environment in which to sort of just, just think and, and put things in context. It's been a treat. So thank you very much. You're welcome. And everyone else, thank you for listening in to myself and the wonderful Christine Fairchild. And we will see you on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Alumni Podcasts. If you have a question or a topic that you'd like us to cover in this series, then please reach out to us over our social media channels. And if you'd like to learn more about producing a podcast for your alumni community, then visit our website for more information at alumnipodcasts.com. Until next time, bye-bye for now.